Hi, everyone. This is Alien Talk Podcast, a program where we discuss all things about aliens and UFOs, and where we always push the limits of our understanding. We are Joe Landry and Nori Olford, here with you again for another exciting episode where we explore the wondrous subjects that pertain to extraterrestrials, the paranormal, and the mysterious. We are starting a new season today, and it happens to be our Halloween episode, where we get into a preternatural sort of theme. Uh, we did that last year when we discussed al- reptilian aliens and looked at the literary parallels to the sinister and dark side of reptile symbolism, particularly with that of the serpent, as found in our mythologies. So welcome all of you, and thank you for joining us. As always, we're really glad to have you here. So, hey, Laurie, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Joe. <clears throat> so so I'd like to begin with uh, you know, uh, giving a shout-out to uh, Miles from... Uh, from the Thing Museum, who was with us last episode. Uh, it was really nice having him on. And, uh, I mean, we had an in-depth discussion with him about the possibility of aliens having come to Earth long ago during the reign of the dinosaurs. Yeah, it certainly was. Uh, for those of you out there who haven't downloaded our previous episode titled Aliens and Dinosaurs, we encourage you to do that and check it out. It was really a good show that we had with him. Yeah, it was. Uh, so this time for the Halloween season, we're going to discuss the importance of Stonehenge and how it relates to fables and legends from the distant past. Now, as most people know, Stonehenge is located in England on the Salisbury Plain near Wiltshire, to be exact, which is some 90 miles west of London. And it is probably the most familiar megalith in the world. Um, but Stonehenge has always been shrouded in mystery. And as well, as we'll see, it connects with uh, possible extraterrestrial influences similar to those thought to relate to the unexplainable origin of other monuments, such as Giza pyramids. And it wouldn't be Halloween if we didn't also examine the association of Stonehenge with its pre-Christian forerunner, uh, the Druid holiday called Samhain or uh, Sowen, as it is actually pronounced. I'm not sure how you get that from the way the word is spelt, but anyway, it was a ritualistic feature of the religious life of the Celtic and Gaelic peoples who inhabited the British Isles thousands of years ago, and it contains some of the same mythical elements that we find elsewhere, uh, having these allusions, uh, references to aliens interacting with humans. Well, you know, Joe, regardless of how Stonehenge has such a you know magical timeless mystery tied to it. The first thought that always comes to my mind when I hear the word is Chevy Chase in National Lampoon Vacation when he uh, backs the car into it and knocks the whole thing down. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> uh, that was the yeah, the European vacation one. Yeah, you're right. I don't think you can help but remember that scene. Uh, yeah, Chevy Chase's character Clark Griswold is like, "That's right, kids, a thing of glory." For a million generations to see, and and we were here. <laughs> then he backs the car and into one of the monoliths, and they all go down like dominoes. I mean, how was he even able to park his car right up next to it like that? <laughs> um, yeah, no. I don't think there's really any other way to visualize Stonehenge except from the scene from that movie. Yeah, that's a classic. But you're probably right. <laughs> um, well, many people think that those stones are just sitting on top of the ground, and that's why. Jimmy Chase was able to knock them down like he did in the movie. Of course, I mean, we know he actually didn't knock them down, down knock them over, of course. The, uh, the monoliths are being, what were they buried about uh, three feet into the ground to give support? 
Mm-hmm. But what's strange about Stonehenge is that it was built by an unknown people who left no record of its uh, construction or purpose that it serves. The oral tradition that was preserved by the Druids, uh, who also did not write down any narratives or chronicles, contained the story of how giants had put the huge stones into place. Now, this shouldn't uh, sound too surprising, as we find similar tales uh, being told about the Easter Island statues. The, uh, the Mesoamerican temples, the Giza pyramids, and the Baalbek and megaliths. Um, even if uh, modern scientific research had led to the plausible explanation of how ordinary humans could have erected these things, we seem to always find that the people's mythologies tell of a story of how someone else, someone else with more power, like a giant or an angel or a god, had either done, done the work or at least taught the uh, ancestors how to do the work. According to Yuka Shin uh, with the British website history10.com, this was dated uh, March 2nd of this year, the construction of Stonehenge began as early as 3100 BC and to have been finished as late as 2000 BC. The scientific investigations of the site only started in the 1600s after King James I is said to have visited it, and it was first surveyed by historian John Aubrey who incorrectly attributed to the Celts and uh, believed it to be a religious site that was overseen by the Druids. This was later found to not be the case, as the dating of the monument put it in, or at a time long before the uh, the Celts ever inhabited Britain. Right, so remember that the Druids were the priestly class of the Celtic and Gaelic tribes who lived in many parts of Europe. Uh, They were aristocratic and elite. I guess you can compare them to the Sadducees of Judaism uh, who are mentioned in the Gospels, uh, who were the priests associated with the temple at the time of Jesus. So in a similar fashion, the Druids were the custodians of the mythology and cultural lore, but strangely left behind no texts of any kind, uh, at least none that have been yet discovered. Uh, Our knowledge of them really only comes from what is mentioned by Roman writers from after the time of Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul in 50 BC. Uh, according to some, like Cicero and, and Tacitus, um, the, their authority was subdued under the Roman government, and it seems that they no longer they were no longer around after the first century AD. They sort of just disappeared. But what makes the Druids interesting is that their legacy is carried on uh, throughout the folklore of Ireland in the form of great heroes of the past. And those heroes are similar to the demigods of other cultures, like that of the Greeks, the Romans, the Egyptians, and the Babylonians. And their abilities surpass that of ordinary people, uh, much like we would expect to be told of someone who possessed something like, uh, you know, more advanced technology, more more gadgets, more gizmos. Yeah, and that could very well be comparable to how people living in ancient times would describe an extraterrestrial being would obviously possess more advanced technology and would be considered a demigod or a god or an angel or even a magician. So as to the modern debate over the purpose of Stonehenge, uh, there are two schools of thought. According to James Owen with the National Geographic Society, uh, one is that it is a holy site where something of great religious significance took place perhaps something similar to like the place where the burning bush was believed to have been on Mount Sinai, you know, something that was uh, considered to be of great importance. The second is that it served as a, as an, 
uh, an astron astron a a uh, observatory, or I'm oh, sorry, a astron what was this astronomy astronomy astronomical <laughs> astronomical yeah <laughs> an, an astronomical uh, observatory, uh, but both based their uh, theories on the site's celestial configuration with alignments to the ecliptic. Uh, by which the sun and moon are moving along the sky between the summer and winter solstices. Well, you know, fortunately, Stonehenge has never suffered too much damage from wars, vandalism, or the elements. Although by the beginning of the 20th century, it was dilapidated to some degree, and, and some of the large lintels had fallen. Um, but we can still see its configuration being pretty much the same way as it has been built, you know, many millennia ago. Right, as it was in the 1950s when the uh, British government coordinated with various specialists to do some restoration work on it. And they lifted some of those lintels back up on the pillars. To do this, they had to use a crane, actually a very large crane, some of them weighing over 20 tons. So this required some heavy equipment. Yeah, it, it was an actual crane. So you know, here we are left perplexed as to how ancient people accomplished this, uh, as with the other monuments. You know, without the application of engine-driven machinery like cranes and trucks that we see being used in the you know, building of modern-day structures. And that alone is a mystery in and of itself. You know, if you're a Stone Age person or a Bronze Age person and you have no equipment at all like we do in our modern era with diesel engines and hydraulics and electrical power, why are you going to build something that's even if you're going to build it in the honor of something magnanimous, like honoring the gods. I mean, what's going to make you think of constructing it to be so large that it would be pretty much inconceivable in your mind? I mean, if I were thinking about building something and I had no tools other than some sharp stones and some sticks and some roller logs and only muscle power from a lot of men, I'm thinking of something about the height of my shoulders and calling it good. <laughs> um, I mean, the idea of reaching the sky by just using bare hands is, is remarkable and difficult to fathom. We'll be back after a quick break. Hi, and welcome to Hiss and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss and Tell. Right, but... So the point is, it requires a lot of work, and something has to motivate and inspire you to do that work. So with these megalithic monuments from ancient times, we believe the human beings actually constructed them. Uh, but why and how? And what compelled them to make the Moai statues of Easter Island, the pyramids of Egypt? Or like you said, the Great Temple of Jupiter, Baalbek in Lebanon, or the Acropolis in uh, Athens in Greece. This was back breaking work that would have cost lives. So whatever motivated them to make such colossal structures must have been pretty darn significant. Now, the large stones or, or the monoliths of Stonehenge average at nine tons in weight. The blue stones, the first ones um, to have been placed at Stonehenge, uh, has been discovered to have originated in the 
in the Priscilla Mountains of west or southwest Wales. Uh, what's strange is how these gigantic stones were transported to the plains. After arriving by some kind of watercraft, they must have been loaded or been unloaded at the uh, nearest beach in order to shorten the distance to the plains. However, the closest beach is itself just over 31 miles away. On top of that, the stones were actually too heavy for log rollers. The heaviest ones would just crush the wood. The hailstone, possibly the heaviest one, is approximately 30 tons, which is 60,000 pounds. Others average about 50,000 pounds, and the smaller blue stones average around 9 tons, or 18,000 pounds. Uh, it's a popular belief that the stones were erected approximately 5,000 years ago. So here we have ancient ancestors moving massive stones with the weight equivalency to that of F-15 fire jets, fire trucks, and fully grown elephants. Yeah, I mean, this isn't made of blocks of stone that are just a few hundred pounds. I mean, these are thousands of pounds. I mean, tons, actually. And we can ask ourselves, why not make Stonehenge smaller? Why not just use stones that are, you know, a few feet high instead of 15 to 20 feet high? You know, couldn't it have served the, the same purpose if it had been smaller? I don't, I don't know. Exactly. Like, why did it have to be on such a large scale? Uh, in an article by Newsky.com, dated February 19, 2019, it claims that the stones were now moved over land and not by sea. But as you read the article, it states that the lighter bluestones were the ones transported on land by wood rollers. The much heavier granite ones, however, were placed on rafts. Now, the article goes on to claim that these bluestones were pulled along on wooden timbers for 180 miles, all the way to Salisbury Plain. At 10 miles per hour, this would take about 18 hours at a steady pace on entire flat plateaus. In fact, they probably barely made it at five miles per hour. Uh, by boat, we're looking at about 160 miles, plus hauling them 31 miles up a beachfront cliffside. Definitely a lot of labor that would have involved thousands of men. Yeah, for sure. So much like with the Easter Island Moai and the uh, Giza pyramids, theories are somewhat successfully tested, but still do not fully account for the grand scale on which uh, these monuments were accomplished in their building. And they failed to take into consideration the complete lack of sophisticated machinery back then, as well as the difficulties of organizing an efficient and disciplined workfo workforce, you know, of Stone Age or Bronze Age people. Uh, the, the organization and communication uh, methods were just uh, far inferior to what they are today and, and what's needed to uh, accomplish these great projects. And, and researchers are never able to completely extract the you know, the quote-unquote modernness, you know, of the present-day people who were trying to replicate um, one of these projects that were done in, in ancient times. So why not at least give some consideration to what the oral tradition says about their construction? So if these theories of cumbersome logistics are somewhat accepted, then why not giants? Why not consider that there were just much bigger beings, larger beings who moved this stuff? Why ignore the Bible where it says in Genesis 6-4 that there were giants upon the earth in those days, and also after that. Now, could all these ancient sources that mention the word giant be giving us a clue about how something like maybe Stonehenge was put into place? And of course, when we hear the word giant, Laurie, we think about the Nephilim. And we think of, when we think about the Nephilim, we recall the account from the Book of Enoch of how they were the offsprings, or the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. 
And as we know, this particular literary depiction has been speculated by ancient astronaut theorists to be a reference to extraterrestrial interaction with prehistoric human, prehistoric human women. Uh, so when we find these allusions to giants in mythology, we must consider this nexus with alien beings. Now, the, uh, this Celtic tradition of giants building Stonehenge has carried over into the Arthurian legend, uh, where Merlin the wizard, uh, who, who he magically, uh, is said in that story, he's mag he magically transported the large uh, stones all the way from Ireland, and that they were assembled uh, on Salisbury Plain by, by giants. Yeah, and Merlin himself has said, in the uh, tales of King uh, Arthur to not be from this world. In uh, Sir Thomas Melroy, or Melroy's uh, English version of the French story, Le Morde Arthur, uh, Merlin is illustrated as having the ability to shapeshift and that he was spawned by a human mother who was impregnated by an incubus, a spiritual creature. Now, this gives us not only a similar parallel to the Nephilim, but also bears a characteristic said to belong to the reptilians, which is to be deceptive in appearance, to be a shapeshifter. And we see that as mythology evolved and changed over time, that spirits, angels, and demons were believed to be able to do the same thing. So here we have the story of Stonehenge preserved in the Celtic oral tradition, that beings not from nearby, not even from this world, are the ones who are responsible for building it. Now, most archaeologists find some reason to believe that Stonehenge served the purpose of both a temple and an astronomical observatory. Really, to the Druid, Druids, the two functions were, were uh, probably inseparable. Uh, it acted in which the seasons could be noted on a daily basis through the changing positions of the sun throughout the year. And we have to remember, Laurie, that to the ancient peoples, timekeeping was a, a big deal. Uh, according to a scholarly journal by Timothy Darville uh, titled Keeping Time at Stonehenge from the Cambridge University Press, uh, dated March 2nd of this year, the time reckoning was essential to knowing when to celebrate festivals for the best effect of pleasing the gods. Uh, they didn't have clocks or calendars in the way we do today. The average person had to rely on experts who maintained the proper knowledge of setting the pace for tracking days throughout the year. Uh, now, it was important to please those gods, <laughs> so time reckoning was often considered to be a sacred task, which is why we find that the priests, with their divine intercessions, uh, are the ones who managed the calendars and decreed when certain events, festivals, and celebrations were meant to take place. Uh, they were the ones who could read the heavens, and this was true even within Christianity all throughout the Middle Ages. Uh, just go to those cathedrals in Europe, and you'll find many of them have a huge elaborate astronomical clocks that showed the uh, positions of the sun, the moon, and the planets. And, and even if they weren't uh, all that accurate, uh, people back then knew that if you wanted to know what was going on with the sky, you had to seek out the priests and the monks and the holy men. Right. And the church also had the authority to precisely change and update the calendar, most notably by devising the Gregorian calendar, which we still use to this day. And we see that with Stonehenge. It was indeed built for this purpose. It is aligned northeast, southwest, and is theorized to have been strategically placed by its builders on the solstice 
and the uh, equinox points to be tangent to where the sun rose closest to the heelstone, which uh, where it then lit up the uh, the center. This obviously wasn't accidental or even coincidental. So it appears that it had alignments within the celestial sphere that could help you tell if you were reconciled with the occurrences of the solstices and equinoxes, uh, as well as predict when there would be eclipses of the sun or of the moon. Now, it is also speculated that certain ceremonies took place there at Stonehenge, uh, possibly pertaining to the worship of the sun. And in the custom of Gothic storytelling, some people believe that human sacrifices took place there and that there was the libation of blood and the drinking of blood and, and other nasty things like that. And, but you know, the bottom line is that there is almost no evidence to support it. Uh, not very much is known about these pagan festivals, but yeah, there probably were instances of human sacrifices. You know, some of the glyphs uh, found among the Aztec ruins in Mexico have depicted it, uh, as well as with some Polynesian and, and Japanese artifacts showing human sacrifices. And certainly the Bible refers to it and makes reference to it uh, with the cult of the Canaanite god Moloch, in which child sacrifices were performed. And it specifically forbids it in Leviticus 22 and Deuteronomy 18.10. Uh, so it did happen. It, it is said to have happened, as bad things have always happened throughout human history. And it could have happened in places, it could have happened at Stonehenge. It could have. Um, human bones have been discovered in the vicinity, indicating that there were burials, uh, possibly burials from the sacrificial victims. Uh, we simply don't know for sure. Yeah, but the depiction of sacrifice emphasizes the importance of blood in the minds of the ancients. Why, why the need to offer blood to the gods? We've mentioned before that blood is a symbol of life and that people believe that life came from God or the gods. The gods being the extraterrestrials who made us as a hybrid species, as reference to the Anunnaki of Sumerian mythology. So this idea of sacrificing life to give it back to the gods resonates throughout much of you know, religious dogma. This, of course, includes Christianity, where the belief of a perfect sacrifice to Jesus is central to the faith and salvation. But uh, more likely than not, Stonehenge mostly served as an uh, astronomical purpose which uh, told of the solstices and of the sun and lunar eclipses, much like the observatory-looking monuments on top of the Mayan pyramids, which, too, show special effects from the sun on the pyramid, indicating that the god Quetzalcoatl descending the pyramid by way of creating shadows to look like as if a uh, snake is slithering up and down on the pyramid steps. Now, this could also be why priests were able to obtain such influence over the people. They were you know, diviners, who knew about astronomy and knew how this worked and therefore were able to predict the change of seasons and thus how harvesting and weather patterns were going to be. I can see where they would have gotten a lot of uh, the power from. <laughs> now, there are other megalithic formations throughout England, as well as other parts of the world that are similar to Stonehenge, and they seem to serve the same purposes, that being astronomical observatories, uh, calendars, and tributes to the dead, and, and sites of ritualistic importance. Uh, in Outer Hebrides in northern Scotland, there's a place called Callanish, in which there are stone arrangements on the ground, and they are a, a little smaller than Stonehenge, but date to around the same time. Uh, they are arranged with the same sort of celestial precision 
to align with the axes that correspond to the times when the year, uh, the sun rises and sets along the horizon at the solstices and equinoxes. Uh, there is also Karnak in northern France, which dates back to as early as 4000 BC, and it too is associated with Merlin. Uh, these are large pieces of granite, uh, over a thousand of them, uh, arranged in nearly perfect straight lines, um, oriented for uh, the same uh, northwest and southeast alignment uh, to, to correspond to positions of where the sun and moon rise along the horizon. And uh, according to yet more Celtic legend, this was believed to be a formation of a legion of Roman soldiers uh, that Merlin had turned into stone pillars. <laughs> um, and there's another henge. Uh, it should be noted that the word henge is uh, Old English for hinge or hang or, or even pit. And that other henge is called the Martin henge. And here, the stones are more spread out than, according to Roth Smith of the National Geographic Society in his article dated August 15th, 2015, it is more than 10 times the area of Stonehenge, which is just to the south of it. So something was going on in, in this part of the world some 5,000 to 6,000 years ago that was making people want to move very large rocks into place to form these special patterns on the ground like this. And there's also one near the village of Durrington Walls, just two miles away from Stonehenge that they call Superhinge, and it too is estimated to be about 4,500 years old, with about 100 monoliths. So it is almost like the older brother, or the older big brother of Stonehenge. <laughs> um, I think this place was discovered in 2015, but uh, on a report in uh, USA Today. Um, but this uh, goes to show us, Joe, that there are many more monuments waiting to be discovered out there, whether underground or under thick jungle brush. Who knows, right? It's just a matter of time. Um, but now let's let's not forget what we mentioned a couple of episodes ago, and that is, you know, Gobekli Tepe in eastern Turkey. Uh, it was first excavated uh, excavated in uh, 1995 and was completely buried. It is, uh, but it has pillars that are 50 feet in height, about 10 tons in weight, and have intricate design designs of various animals. On now, this site has been dated to a stagger, staggeringly old age of 11,000 years, meaning it was constructed around 9,000 BC, making it older than Stonehenge by some 6,000 years. So this could very well be the oldest non-natural construction on Earth, non-natural meaning made by humans or possibly you know, made by something else. Yeah, and, and strangely enough, Gobekli Tepe is arranged in a similar way to all these other henges and that it is circular and concentric in its pattern. It may have actually served several purposes, uh, some of them being religious and some of them being more agrarian. But according to an article in, in Smithsonian Magazine by Andrew Curry, uh, dated in November 2008, it is believed that if Gobekli Tepe was a place of worship of some deity, uh, then it is on a scale unprecedented for the Neolithic period. Uh, this, of course, would raise the question of what it was that these Stone Age people were venerating so much back then that almost 10,000 years ago, they would move such large rocks into place the way they did. And was it for a, a similar purpose like that of Stonehenge, uh, to act as an, like an observatory to predict seasons, uh, lunar phases and eclipses? 
or was it really just like something of a, of a great big temple uh, to worship a god or, um, you know, god? Yeah, this now brings us to the speculation of the Druids carrying out rituals at Stonehenge or any of the other hinges for that matter, which may tie in with a festival called Samhain, which is the uh, forerunner to Halloween. Now, this was a Celtic holiday that commemorated the dead ancestors, and the belief was that the wall, or the veil, uh, that uh, separated the realms of the living and of the dead was Venice at this time, sort of being halfway between the, you know, the autumn equinox and the winter solstice. So could the Druids have possessed secret knowledge about something going on in the heavens at this time of year, or had happened this time of year in the distant past? And did they then use that knowledge to influence the rituals at Stonehenge? Right. You know, and like we've said about most ancient pagan festivals, not a whole lot is known about um, Samhain or, or Solon. Uh, but the church actually has a liturgical label for this time of year. It is known as Hallowtide. And it is about the commemoration of the saints and all of the faithfully departed, the deceased Christians. It's on the calendar as All Saints Day, which is a holy day of obligation for Catholics. And then as All Souls Day, which is the day right after. Yeah, um, we also see All Souls Day with the uh, popular celebration of Latin American countries as uh, Dia de los Muertos or Day of the Dead. Like you said, as a uh, you know, commemoration of the deceased. Of course, most cultures around the world have holidays for such observance, and many of them are around this time of year and are also associated with the fall harvest and reaping of the benefits from the year's work. But there is something uh, noteworthy about this time of year having a, an otherworldly connection, Joe, and that is from the Usher chronology, right? Yeah, James Usher, who was an Irish archbishop, calculated the date of creation back in the 17th century and, and based it on close and critical analysis of the scriptures and came up with 4004 B.C., um, but he actually went as far as to postulate that the day and month uh, as the, the, being the night preceding the 23rd of October in the year 4004 B.C. So um, that is today. And uh, <laughs> happy, happy New Year. <laughs> uh, happy New Year. <laughs> obviously, there is no corroborating scientific evidence to this. Yet you know, there it is, the notion that something big happened in the past during what is, you know, the autumnal uh, time frame. So what was it that happened? And does Stonehenge play a part in it by having helped the Druids track the seasons to know when this date was approaching? Yeah, and of course, uh, Usher's apostasis fell flat because the biblical timeline has has been shown to be inaccurate. The creation and flood portions of it, anyway. Places like Gobekli Tepe proved that. So did humans really build, you know, Gobekli Tepe? If so, then Usher's timeline is way off. Uh, what if it was built by alien beings? That could be the case, especially when you consider, you know, the fine, precise cuts in those stones. And, you know, every time I read comments on YouTube videos about these places, there's always someone saying, well, we are not giving our ancestors enough credit. Look, uh, I understand that we can't dismiss that, you know, th they may have had the skill and possibly even some kind of technology that is now lost, but it seems unlikely. Um, we, we seem to find everything else around those monuments, except for 
how they actually did it. Um, nothing is found indicating this uh, was how it was accomplished. Yet we, we totally pass off the oral tales uh, that describe the, the sky people do. And perhaps we should be more open about looking into that. So we see that the Celts observed Samhain and the fall season as the, the start of the new year on their calendar. And we know that New Year's Day is an arbitrary date. There's no reason why New Year's can't be on October 31st. So you can pick any day to be the start of a new year. The January 1st has just so happened to be the universally accepted date. But we know that many cultures observe the spring equinox in March. Uh, that was a big one for a long time. The Chinese have it in February. The Jews have it in September. So it can be at any time, right? Yeah, it can. And, and actually, what is interesting about the Jewish calendar is that it starts its new year around the autumnal equinox with Rosh Hashanah and, and begins the lunar month of Tishrei. Uh, but according to the uh, Jewish Mishnah, um, this particular month was chosen to start the new year, as is believed to coincide with the timing of the Adam and Eve story. So there is something about the fall season that links up our mythical thinking with the celestial machinations seen in the sky. Uh, could there be that, such a case? Uh, and that might be because this is the season as impressed upon our collective and inherited members in which we were brought into existence by the extraterrestrial gods. Maybe that is what is meant by the thin wall that the Druids said is between the living and the dead at this time of Samhain and during this liturgical season of Awotai. Yeah, but and so we'll just give some historical background to this whole Halloween subject. Uh, so in the in the seventh century, Pope Boniface the Fourth set May thirteenth as a feast to celebrate all of the saints and martyrs, and to replace the Roman holiday of Lemuralia. Uh, that was a festival that honored all of the restless spirits that wandered the earth. Uh, the church worked pretty hard back then to purge the pagan theme out of these festivals and turn them into Christian celebrations. Now, in the more northern parts of Europe, like in, in the British Isles, All Saints Day was held on November 1st and was called All Hallows Day, Hallow for Saint, right after Samhain, or, or Solon, uh, which eventually became called All Hallows Eve since it was the day before All Hallows Day. And now by the 9th century, the May 13th date stopped being recognized in favor of the November 1st one, and the name All Hallows Day was simply replaced with All Saints Day, and after a while, All Hallows Eve became uh, Hallows Eve, which became corrupted into the word Halloween. And All Souls Day was also moved around the 9th century from being observed during the Easter season to being uh, on November 2nd, which is right after All Saints Day. Well, you know, strangely enough, in Irish folklore, which holds a lot of similarities to that of its Celtic and Gaelic predecessors, there is a god called Aelin. Uh, Elin is a giant, and he was able to breathe fire and little people into a trance by playing music on his lyre. So a hero named Fion is said to have defeated him, protecting a town called Terra during Samhain. Now, like with all mythology, we find this thesis in the way of creatures, good and evil, demons, spirits, monsters, as well as elves, trolls, fairies, uh, I don't know what else. Joe. Well, what are sprites, uh, sprites, pixies, gnomes, ogres? Yeah. yeah, you know all those fairy tale creatures. <laughs> yeah, right. But with this tale of Fion defeating Aileen, 
or A. Lynn, uh, there is a painting from 1913 by Irish artist Beatrice Elvery in which A. Lynn is breathing fire up on Fionn's shield. He is very extraterrestrial in his appearance and actually looks like Darth Vader. Uh, I mean, I'm not kidding. Uh, it really does look like a visitor from outer space, dark, super tall, and in uh, shooting a, a beam out of its mouth at, at a medieval warrior, a Viking-looking guy. And he has on what looks like Dark Vader's helmet. I mean, uh, I, I guess we can put that up on our uh, Facebook page so everyone can see it. But, uh, you know, these elements of giants and extraterrestrials really seems to pervade the oral traditions that come to the surface in the structure of the uh, mythologies. I mean, oddly enough, even the word alien uh, sounds like alien and is spelt very closely to it. Obviously, in 1913, there was no Darth Vader character around to inspire the artists, and I don't know uh, why it looks the way it does, but it really looks pretty sci-fi. Yeah, uh, anachronistically sci-fi for sure. <laughs> and, and Fion is a figure similar to Beowulf from Germanic mythology, and this is another form thesis we find in mythology with syncretism. That is the borrowing of character and image typologies one from another. And yeah, we see that there's the consistent mythical concept of giants and also dragons, you know, but definitely things of the extraordinary uh, from beyond this world, whether good or bad. And the question that keeps coming to mind is, do these concepts originate from the collective cultural memories as told in ancient stories about extraterrestrials coming to Earth and interacting with prehistoric humans? Right. And could Stonehenge have been built for the gods? If so, who were these gods? Could the giants have been the ideal workforce in erecting these megalithic structures? Uh, there may very well have been, uh, or they may very well have been the uh, Ijiki uh, of the Sumerian tradition, who were enforced by the Anunnaki to first mine the gold in southern Africa. Then, of course, the revolt happened, and the Anunnaki had no choice but to create a slave species to relieve the gods of their burden. Hence, the human race was created in great numbers, so as to match the strength of just one giant. To me, this makes sense. After seeing how massive these megaliths are, and humans looking like an ant when they stand next to them. I mean, I, I can picture a scene at Stonehenge some 2,000 years ago, as the Celtic people would you know, gather during a cold autumn night for the Festival of Samhain and leave offerings of food and drink in order to appease the spirits who transferred from the uh, netherworld. Um, the Druid priests would lead in the worship of the gods by uh, sacrificing animals on huge bonfires, praying for protection. And who were these gods they sacrificed to? Could they be the same ones from the translated stories of the original godhead, which would have been the Anunnaki? But by the time of Celtic Druids, they were uh, known as Amethion, i.e. Enlil, Zeus, Jupiter, Lyre, i.e. Inki, Poseidon, and Neptune, and Balor, i.e. Anu, Kronos, and Saturn, as well as a list of about 23 more, all having similarities with the ancient some, you know, Mesopotamian gods and other pantheons. And as it is with that, we see how the religious beliefs of the world all fall along a, a sort of continuum, a persistent story that goes back to the very dawn of human civilization. And that repeats itself again and again. 
that story is that we come from something from somewhere out there in the majestic region of the heavens, uh, what we now refer to as outer space. So that wraps up for today. Uh, thanks for being with us for the show. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, for our next episode, we're going to revisit the whole ancient astronaut theory and discuss some of the points that were we, we covered all the way back from our very first podcast show. Yeah, we're pretty excited about this one as as well as we'll be joined by uh, Aaron Long as our guest. He he runs the Ancient Astronaut Theory Facebook page and he is very well versed in this uh, subject matter and it should bring a great deal of material for us to talk about next time, which will be on Sunday, November 6th. Right. So he'll be joining us from over in the UK. Uh, so we will have a big time zone difference to deal with. Um, but some of you may already know about Aaron and follow him on social media. And apparently he is also involved in some filmmaking over there in England. Yeah, I think he does acting as well. And uh, he played in some movies a few years ago. I think one was called The Last Road from 2012. And he is also a former professional wrestler, and uh, I think he plays some soccer. I'm not sure. <laughs> and now uh, he is a big advocate researcher of mythology and ancient alien studies. So I think he is going to give us a very interesting take on, uh, on all of this. So I'm really looking forward to it. And for certain. And we hope all of you tune in for that as we get back in to what it is about uh, the ancient astronaut theory that compels us to re-examine our religious beliefs about the Bible and to, to look at comparative mythology in a whole different way. You know, why do we ponder it in the way that we do? What is it about the stars and the idea of life existing elsewhere in the universe that enthralls us so much? And we'll get into that in the next time as we discuss the very reasons for wondering about aliens in the first place. And until then, for those of you who do celebrate Halloween, we hope you have a fun and safe time doing so, and stay curious. Yeah, have a happy Halloween, everyone. Uh, we look forward to being with you again next time right here on the Alien Talk Podcast. Take care, everyone.